Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese authorities review guidelines on high-quality development of the Yangtze River economic belt. World's first supply chain expo has kicked off in Beijing. Israel and Hamas agree to extend truce for two days. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has chaired the meeting of the Political Bureau of the Communist Party of China Central Committee on the development of China's Yangtze River economic belt. It said during the meeting that since the unveiling of the blueprint for the economic belt, progress has been made in various aspects, including ecological conservation and regional integration. The meeting also pointed out that the region's high-quality development hinges on the healthy ecological environment of the Yangtze River Basin. It required governments at all levels to protect the ecosystem, work with each other in decarbonizing industries, reducing pollution and boosting growth. The meeting also called for more innovation in emerging arenas, the further integration of innovation chains in the region and modernization of the region's industrial and supply chains. The meeting stressed the importance of industrial layout along the Yangtze River and the region's strategic position in connecting both domestic and international markets. Now, for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Yao Shujie, Changkang Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So the Chinese leadership called for more efforts to promote the high-quality development of the Yangtze River economic belt, and it was said that since the blueprint for the economic belt was unveiled, progress has been made in various areas. So, Professor Yao, what do you make of it, and what progress have been made in ecological conservation and also the regional integration? The Yangtze River or the Changjiang River economic belt. Is, is the most important economy uh, in, in China. Um, and the ecological system, economy integration, have been highly promoted by the central government led by uh, President Xi Jinping. The purpose of promoting the uh, Yangtze River economy bill is to drive the Chinese economy sustainable at a, a high co- with high quality which means that uh, economic growth will be benefit not only the people, but also there will be some integration with the natural ecological environment. And this meeting uh, sends out two important signals. Uh, first signal is technological-driven innovation will promote the industrial quality. And also the, you know, the spatial arrangement of industrial uh, activity in along the Bell uh, provinces and cities. And the second uh, signal is that this kind of development should be very highly uh, environmentally friendly. Future economic growth driven by the Yangtze River economy Bell will be also co-integrated with the effort to improve the natural environment. Mm. And so what are the focal points for the high-quality development of this region now? The focal point is that the technological innovation will be the key priority. Uh, with technological innovation to improve not only uh, the existing industrial uh, production efficiency, uh, reducing the carbon intensity per unit of GDP, but also to create new uh, industrial uh, activity and product or uh, also the ecosystem for the economic development along the uh, Yangtze River economy belt. Mm. Uh, so, so new industries, particularly the 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 emerging industries, which are particularly high tech driven and also are more uh, environmental friendly compared to the traditional industries. Mm-hmm. So, these are the two efforts that will be driven by uh, con- continuous and in increasing investment in technology and human capital. 
And as you mentioned, the opening up and technological innovation are highlighted in the region's blueprint. So what have been done or what could be done on this front? And could you tell us more about this region's innovation capacity and also its role in the industrial supply chain? Yeah, the Chinese um, innovation, if we're talking about economy center and technological innovation centers, the biggest innovation center is in effect uh, in Beijing, Luan uh, Beijing, the Luan Shanghai, uh, the, the Yangtze River Delta, and also uh, along the Pio River Delta. Apart from that, there is also uh, the, the city cluster around Wuhan and also the city cluster around Chongqing and, and Chengdu. So Chongqing, Chengdu, Wuhan, Shanghai are the three key points. Also, there are some other major cities such as Nanking, uh, Hangzhou, and so on. They are the most important center of innovation, higher education, and you know, science research. So, um, the, the, you know, the concept level of innovation activity in the mentioned, uh, you know, city cluster is not only fairly advanced in China, but also they have an ambition to become the front runner of the of the global technological innovation and this this city is going to play a really important role in fulfilling the the development goal of the government mm. so what does the industrial layout along the Yangtze river look like how does it you know benefit the regional integration the industrial layout is basically the spatial distribution in different city clusters you know some city like shanghai which is uh, far more advanced compared to others, is now upgrading into the, the high-end technology, manufacturing, and also high-end, high-quality uh, services. Now, a uh, city like Chongqing and Chengdu, they are, they are also fairly advanced, but compared to Shanghai, they are a little bit lagging behind. And this city, they are, they, they are highly concentrated in terms of traditional manufacturing although effort would be made to uh, improve the structure of the industry. In, in Wuhan, the same, uh, along the Yangtze River, the major city, Wuhan and Nanjing, they are roughly the same in the same stage of Chongqing and Chengdu. Now, this, the so-called uh, a, you know, industrial layout means that uh, different cities will have different advantages. And this advantage is normally closely connected with the, the space available, the water available, uh, and so on and so forth, and also the population density. Mm. For, those, for those cities which have a less uh, population uh, density, they will be more focused on traditional uh, manufacturing. For those cities which have been uh, you know, uh, highly densely populated and fairly advanced in terms of uh, per capita GDP, mm-hmm. they will be more focused on the high-end uh, services. And the Yangtze River Economic Belt covers nine provinces and two municipalities. As you mentioned, it has uh, the municipalities like Shanghai and Chongqing, and it has the provinces like Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and also Sichuan, Yunnan, etc. So how different are they? And how do they respectively contribute to and also benefit from the regional integration? Yeah, first of all, you put in provinces plus two uh, municipalities. Overall, they account for over 40% of China's population and about 50% of China's GDP. Uh, they, they, are, they are very different, of course. As I mentioned, uh, the provinces like, um, and cities like Shanghai, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu, economically and technologically, they are relatively more advanced. And uh, city, you know, provinces like Yunnan, like Guizhou, they are slightly lagging behind. Uh, likewise, I mean, like uh, Chongqing and Chengdu, and to some extent, uh, Hubei, Hunan, Jiangxi, and Anhui. Uh, so those those um, provinces, they are one step lagging behind by the like the Yangtze River Delta. So they will be a very important integration. Uh, among the different cities and the different provinces, which is going to exploit their own competitive advantage, I just mentioned. But in the meantime, uh, they have to look at the aggregate level. At the aggregate level, basically to 
dry economy growth at a certain level, uh, and also the speed of of change have to be maintained. Another thing is that like different reasons they should take advantage of their own natural environment to mm-hmm. uh, to protect the you know to improve the overall ecosystem along the Yangtze River, which mm-hmm. is one of the longest uh, river in the world. So how will the regional development of the Yangtze River Economic Belt contribute to the nation's, you know, overall development? What is the position in connecting both the domestic and international markets? Uh, the economy along the Yangtze River, they are not only fairly large, uh, they are relatively advanced and they are fairly open. For example, like Shanghai is one of the most important uh, ports and also uh, Lingbo, which is also the, the one of the largest export uh, you know port in China, they are highly open. So they are uh, they are connected with the the so-called 20th first century oceanic route. And uh, on the upper end of the Yangtze River, Tongqing and Chengdu and Yunnan to some extent, they are open to the to the European continent and also going south to Southeast Asia. Mm. Which is the so-called uh, in the, the silk economy bell, and they, basically the bell and Law initiative, they are highly connected by these two uh, two two different economy regions along the Yangtze River. Yeah, mm. so uh, openness is one of the driving force, but more importantly, they have to improve the domestic quality of uh, internal growth. So the the so-called double circulation. It's basically to exploit the domestic, large domestic market and manufacturing ability, but also to be open to the outside world to make sure that whatever activity is done in China, they will be globally also advanced. That was Yao Shujie, Changkang Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. Coming up, China hosts the world's first supply chain expo. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The first China International Supply Chain Expo is underway in Beijing. The expo runs through Saturday and aims to provide a platform for enterprises to expand trade and investment cooperation. Addressing the opening ceremony, Chinese Premier Li Qiang said the expo is part of China's efforts to stabilize global supply chains and promote shared development. China. The China International Supply Chain Expo is a national-level expo themed on the supply chain, and it is the first of its kind in the world. As countries look for robust and sustainable growth drivers amid a faltering global recovery, cementing and enhancing cooperation on global industrial and supply chains is in the interest of all parties. As President Xi Jinping stated, maintaining the resilience and stability of the global industrial and supply chains is a vital guarantee in promoting the development of the global economy. The expo is initiated by China to meet the cause of the times and create an international platform for close communication, deeper cooperation, and shared development. Themed Connecting the World for a Shared Future, the expo covers a wide range of industries, including for smart vehicles, green agriculture, clean energy, and digital technology. Now for more, we're joined by Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Thank you, Professor Liu. It's good to have you back on the show. Hi there. Now, Professor, what is the significance of having a global supply chain expo in the first place? Why does the world need this? I think this is a very innovative uh, initiative Mm. uh, uh, and also it's very unique. It is highly needed in today's environment where uh, everybody is really talking about reshaping the global supply chain under the current tension of uh, geopolitical issues and also the disruption 
of uh, uh, supply chains, uh, and also the uh, uh, we are uh, at the critical stage of uh, uh, new innovation, and so how different countries really behave themselves uh, along it. Uh, are they really being conducive or are they being disruptive? And that's also there's also a moral test uh, as how they can really play out. And the other consideration is that. Uh, uh, the business community needs to respond to the new changes. Consumer demands are changing. The uh, global marketplace uh, is also changing under the uh, uh, fragmentation of the uh, globalization and also the digitization program. So uh, whether they are going to step up uh, with the new competitive landscape, and that's also a big test. So that's why uh, China uh, is really very qualified to host such a uh, a strong expo because uh, China uh, has all the uh, industry categories identified by UNDESA mm-hmm. uh, with 20 uh, broad categories and uh, uh, more than 600 of the uh, smaller categories in, in different items. And uh, uh, we are also trying to uh, move up along the ladder of the global supply chain by more of the uh, capital-intensive industries, by more of the innovation-intensive industries. So Mm -hmm. this is really a uh, great success. Mm. Now, addressing the opening ceremony, Chinese Premier Li Qiang said China is willing to build closer production and industrial supply chain partnerships with all countries and that the international community should be wary of the challenges and risks brought about by protectionism. Now, Professor Liu, how do you think China's message will be received at the expo? I think primarily is really pointing to the fact that uh, uh, the looming words of decoupling or de-risking by reducing dependence on uh, China and diversifying uh, their investment portfolio. So there are two issues here. Uh, uh, One is really it is politically driven Mm. and uh, the other is really business-wise driven. So for business, I think they are free to really rearrange their uh, investment portfolio uh, to any any country in, uh, in terms of the upper stream and downstream supply. But uh, uh, the political maneuverability is really very harmful. Uh, you know, implementing protectionist policies and uh, uh, to weaponize mm. the trade policies to distort the market and uh, interfere into the decisions of the uh, business owners. So that's something that's very wrong. Mm. And right now, the, uh, uh, so really to, to uh, unify uh, the uh, consensus uh, where uh, you know, it is really the people that is the, uh, in the end have the final say as how supply chain can be further integrated. And also it is the... Uh, research and development that's there to support the upgrading of uh, uh, global supply chain in which China plays an important role because Mm. we uh, really uh, occupy, uh, particularly in the manufacturing sector, nearly 30% of the total uh, output uh, for the whole world. And also we export more than 20% of the Chinese manufactured goods. So that's why you know, we do have a say and uh, we do have the influence and we are doing the right thing now. Mm. Well, Professor, the expo identified five key areas to showcase the global supply chain industry. Uh, they are smart vehicles, green agriculture, clean energy, digital technology and healthy life. So um, tell us why are these areas specifically chosen? Well, these are re- uh, representing the frontier of the industries uh, mm. where uh, many of the companies would really aim at, and some of them are already uh, leading the uh, innovation in that regard. But uh, when we really talk about supply chain, it is really a, a long chain from the uh, basic materials to the uh, processing and to the uh, engineering process and to the uh, operation and marketing, etc., until uh, to the end of uh, the consumption market. Mm-hmm. So really uh, uh, really support that uh, we only distribute, uh, we only uh, are there to exhibit the, all the cutting edge ones that are, uh, uh, that are important, but uh, you know, we should really uh, conform 
to the uh, to the theme, which is really the supply chain, mm-hmm. and also by uh, working uh, you know, with uh, uh, people at the different points of the supply chain on a global basis. And this is uh, uh, utterly important uh, from material uh, supply and to the end production. Mm. Well, as you mentioned already, uh, led by the U.S., some Western economies have recently started a policy action of de-risking from China, claiming that relying on China for certain factors in the economy or supply chain poses threat to themselves. Well, despite these rhetoric, a survey conducted by HSBC Bank at the China International Import Expo earlier this month showed that 45% of firms expect to expand their supply chain in China over the next year. So what does that tell us about, uh, you know, the expectation of global companies in the Chinese market, in China's supply chain industries? Well, uh, business people make far more rational decisions than politicians. And they know that uh, the uh, Chinese industrial cluster, uh, Chinese uh, the uh, uh, super infrastructure, and also the uh, Chinese, the diligent and professional labor force are not really there to be replaced by any other country at the moment. We can see that uh, while some of the low-end manufacturers have been uh, relocated to uh, Cambodia, to Vietnam, to India, but uh, uh, the uh, CEOs know that uh, uh, by working with China, they have uh, a better competitive advantage. Therefore, they are not really under the total leash of uh, those politicians who propose the protectionist policies. Mm. And there has been a reassuring and a friendly shoring. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, some of them are rated more on a business decisions. So that's uh, no question about it. And uh, in the same time, China is also uh, trying, uh, as we, what we say, empty the cage for new birds, mm. meaning that uh, we are also moving uh, on the uh, upper end of the uh, industrial supply chain by having uh, the the introduction of uh, uh, digitization, automation, etc. Mm-hmm. And more of the companies are engaged in the training of new techniques in programming and also in operating uh, robotics with those uh, labor forces. So therefore, this is really a, uh, a uh, new landscape where, you know, Competition mm. uh, uh, can really play the major role instead of politicians. Mm. Now, Professor, we have a minute and a half to wrap up the conversation. But uh, recovering from the pandemic, what do you think uh, some other challenges the global supply chain industry is facing right now? Well, uh, I think uh, the uh, China has a role to, uh, to play to convince the world that uh, China is very stable and China is now uh, ready to further open uh, on institutional basis, ge- geographical basis, and the consumption market is still uh, the major attraction to uh, global businesses. But uh, in the meantime, China also engaged in green development, and we need more of the cooperation in the uh, climate change uh, industries and also in uh, upgrading our, sof- uh, our softwares. And, uh, uh, and Chinese government's uh, industrial policy is uh, highly supportive and with uh, uh, real the, uh, deliverables. Mm. So therefore, you know, uh, come and work with China and then China in turn will work with you throughout right. the world. Mm. Well, thank you, Professor. That was really a complicated issue, but we appreciate uh, your time and insights. That was Professor Liu Baocheng with University of International Business and Economics. More to come. Israel and Hamas agreed to another two-day truce. You're listening to World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. 
to prepare for the world tomorrow. Join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Israel and Hamas have agreed on a two-day extension of the temporary ceasefire. A Qatari official says this means at least 20 more Israelis held in Gaza and 60 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons will be freed. Palestinian authorities say Israel has arrested more than 3,000 Palestinians since October the 7th. More than 15,000 Palestinians have died in the conflict so far, while Israel reported 1,200 deaths on its side. Sam Mednick tells us more. Hamas and Israel have agreed to extend the ceasefire by two more days. This would extend the original four days. What this would look like would be two more days with no fighting and 20 more hostages released, 10 hostages per day of ceasefire. Qatar announced this on Monday. Now, on Monday was the final batch of the original agreement where 11 hostages were released into Israel. They are receiving medical attention, according to Israel's military. The majority of those released on Monday were children. But there are still an estimated 175 hostages believed to be in Gaza. It's unclear when they are going to get out. If they were to do a ceasefire with batches of people being released, it could take up to about two and a half weeks. It's not even sure if that is an option that's on the table. A lot of the people in Gaza are soldiers that have been abducted, and it's likely that the militants would want a different kind of agreement in order for them to get out. That was Sam Mednick reporting from Jerusalem. As a rotating president of the UN Security Council for November, China is holding a Security Council high-level meeting on the Palestinian-Israeli issue on Wednesday. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is traveling to New York to chair the meeting. Now, for more on this issue, we're joined by Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be back with you tonight. Now, Professor, I remember uh, we had you talking on this issue uh, when the truce, the four-day truce initially started. Now, how do you comment on the implementation of the first four-day truce between Hamas and Israel? Well, of course, when the when we last spoke and when the truce was beginning, uh, everyone's position was heart and mouth, particularly families of, of people taken hostage, just hoping it would work, but not knowing that it was going to work. Um, from that context, it's worked as well as we could have imagined. The fact we now have another two days confirmed uh, and that things have gone peacefully. I mean, Hamas is the, the major militant power in the Gaza Strip, the major power behind the October 7th uh, terrorist attack, but it's not the only power. Um, there are, you know, a dozen plus smaller groups, uh, beginning with groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Any one of those groups could have done something which which broke the ceasefire. Uh, there could have been an incident with IDF personnel that could have broke the ceasefire, drone over flight. Nothing happened. Nothing went wrong. It all went reasonably well. Mm. Um, trucks got in with aid. So yeah, but, you know, it's for the mm. first time in seven weeks we've got good news. Mm. Now, Professor, how do you see the numbers of days agreed this time by the two sides? Why is why was it a two-day truce? Well, I think the four days uh, was the minimum that that made sense, particularly in terms of resupplying um, Gaza and helping people, who, you know, literally at the point of death in some cases in hospitals. Uh, mm. Israel said at the time that it would consider an extra day for every ten hostages released, um, not an indefinite series of of extra days. Um, the suggestion was a small number. Uh, two days, I, I think what we're seeing is sort of uh, compromise and mm. uh, working out what's possible. Two days is a very reasonable amount. Um, it, it doesn't threaten, it doesn't challenge uh, Hamas. Mm. Uh, it, it makes Israel look like it's achieving something and it builds confidence on both sides. So mm. you know, I think it's probably what we expected, but once again, no one... Did, did say it was going to happen until it happens. And even now, we still have to hope these two days go well, and that it leaves the way open for mm. further uh, exchanges. I mean, as we just heard, 175 remaining hostages, and of course, the situation of the people in, in, in Gaza is dire, so a lot, a lot more to be done. Well then, Professor, exactly on that, how do you see the prospect of this truce being held up and also, you know, maybe further extension of more truce? Yeah. I, I think it, uh, the prospects look good. Um, mm. Uh, I, I think now we're at a point where we can begin to feel a bit confident, not overconfident, of course, mm. but a little bit confident. Um, the prospects look good. Uh, it's We can now see that the um, Benjamin Netanyahu government was pressured into prioritizing negotiations for hostage release by the families of hostage 
members, people who, were, who lost family members to hostage process. Mm. Uh, they mounted a very effective campaign. It forced Netanyahu's government to pivot. Uh, it's not entirely clear why Hamas agreed, but we can assume that Hamas didn't intend the October 7th attack to, much as they intended it apparently to provoke a response, it didn't intend to result in the extinction of Hamas. Um, it, it wants to have a life in future and is under intense pressure in Qatar, where its political leadership is, to, um, to be reasonable if it wants to have any hope of, of having any sort of ongoing existence, if not for the militant leadership, at least for the political wing. So I think both sides see that they've got something to get out of this. And, and there's a degree of trust built through the uh, third parties negotiating this and overseeing it. So um, it, 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 it seems a relatively well-worked-out process that gives confidence that it can be maintained. Mm. Well, Professor, um, Israel has suggested earlier prior to the 40 truce that, uh, you know, the fighting is not ending. But, uh, you know, after we go, in, we go through this 40 truce and then an extension of another two days, how do you think the situation will influence the fighting moving forward? The hope is, and this mm. is the really important thing, uh, as much as in the last few days have been important, the hope is that we don't go back to another seven weeks of terrible destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inevitable that Israel feels it has unfinished business uh, defeating the threat posed by Hamas as a terrorist group in the, in the Gaza Strip and, and running the Gaza Strip, it can't eliminate uh, Hamas. And um, there's foolishness in, in sort of engaging in that rhetoric. Jake Sullivan from the Biden administration, security um, mm. advisor, ha- is on record as saying Israel cannot go back to doing what it did in the north when it, when it moves in the south. Mm. Uh, and we can imagine behind the scenes there's intense pressure. So... Um, the hope is we will see low-level, you know, genuinely precision-targeted um, interventions against Hamas, not not aerial bombardment, dropping whole apartment buildings, um, not you know another 15,000 lives, not even, hopefully, not even thousands more lives. Um, mm. If, if we, we see at the end to what has been the nightmare of the last seven weeks, um, that gives some confidence to look for the day after, beyond, beyond this military operation against Hamas. Mm. Well, the European Union, Professor, is an important stakeholder on this issue, too. Uh, EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, recently penned down an opinion piece in the Financial Times. He argued, uh, here I quote, The best guarantee for Israel's security is the establishment of a Palestinian state. And in the short term, we should avoid weakening the Palestinian authority. Now, Professor, how do you think the message will be received by Israel? Because... U.S. government had similar messages earlier that was kind of refused by the Israeli government. Well, I think those words, um, Israel and U.S. government, are important because it's, it's what we're talking here about the Israeli government of, of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the American government of, um, of um, Biden. The people of Israel clearly want to have lasting peace and security, as do the people of Palestine, including Gaza. Mm. And and I think a a majority begin to understand that can only be achieved through a a just political solution. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu, to be frank, is focused on his own survival and his prospects look dim. Uh, He has been callous and uh, self-serving and uh, basically has has failed this crisis. Uh, Many, most people in Israel blame him for this crisis, for weakening Israel. so that they were caught by surprise, he will not be happy to hear this. But that's mm. not—that's irrelevant. It's not not what he or his right-wing um, cabinet ministers think. It's what the people of Israel think, and, and whether other people can form a future coalition government in in Israel. Always tricky. And yeah, the Palestinian Authority is key. Um, one of the things that Netanyahu has achieved over the last 16 odd years in, in power, on and off, has been to. Um, really make the Palestinian Authority look stupid and weak because he he, he keeps saying. I can promise his right-wing colleagues, he says, I promise you I'm the only man who can deliver uh, the promise of not having a Palestinian state. So he's absolutely opposed to a Palestinian state, whether in Gaza or the West Bank. Uh, He's been focused on helping the settlers expand in the West Bank. Mm. Uh, That whole paradigm has to shift. So Mm. in in a sense, um, so long as the people of Israel welcome the pressure from the US and from the EU and from other friends of Israel uh, and bring about a change in in Israeli politics, then that's that's a good outcome. Thank you, Professor. We always appreciate your time and insights on this issue. That was Professor Greg Barton at Deakin University in Australia. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. 
As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Asia's first ever Saudi Arabia exchange traded fund is being listed in Hong Kong on Wednesday. Announcing the news earlier, Paul Chen, financial secretary of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region Government, said investors will be able to trade the constituent stocks of the Saudi stock market directly in the Hong Kong market through the ETF in Hong Kong dollar or renminbi. The Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited has recently added Saudi Exchange and Indonesian Stock Exchange as recognized stock exchanges, allowing companies listed on these exchanges to be listed in Hong Kong for the second time. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Zhou Mi. He is a research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Thank you, Dr. Zhou. It's good to have you back on the show. Good evening. Now, Dr. Zhou. What is exchange traded fund in the first place, and what does a Saudi ETF being listed in Hong Kong mean for investors? Actually, the ETF is a kind of uh, financial、uh, financial innovative ways of the product. So it provides a、uh, market or targeted、uh, the indexes according to the stock markets, like in this case for the Saudi exchange. So they are using about fifty the the most、uh, traded. Stock、uh, stocks listed in the Saudi exchange、mm. and trying to with a basket of the different stocks, so the investors can use this product to invest in in the Saudi you know the the exchange market and trying to benefit from the change. So it's covering many many areas, including the finance、uh, finance, the energy, and also the raw materials. And it's very important because it also includes one of the giant company of the Saudi. Aramaco,、mm. it's very important.、Mm. So,、uh, doctor, does this mean that if I have an account in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I can basically invest in the Saudi Exchange as well? Yeah, it's according to the change of that areas, so it provides better channels、mm. for you to invest. Right. Now,、uh, doctor, why was the Hong Kong Stock Exchange able to become the first place in Asia to attract Saudi ETF? How does it benefit both sides? Yeah, actually, when the Saudi is trying to use this ETF, many places trying to compete for the the, the list, like in the Tokyo and also some other、uh, stock change.、Uh, I mean that when Hong Kong has benefited a lot by the improvement of the bilateral relation between China and the Saudi, and also the importance and also the potentials for for the growth for the、uh, you know、uh, based on the China market. So I believe that both sides are able to have more information from another side and trying to recognize the trend of the change and benefit for the continuously and sustainable development for both sides.、Mm. Uh, during the past two months, the、uh, Hong Kong stock,、uh, the Hong Kong exchanges, and、uh, Clearing Limited has added Saudi Exchange and Indonesian Stock Exchange as recognized stock exchanges.、Uh, meaning, companies listed on these two exchanges can be listed in Hong Kong for the second time. So, how are the Saudi Exchange and Indonesian Stock Exchange different from traditional Western markets like New York or, or London? Yeah,、uh, you know,、uh, maybe they are, have some similarities. If you are talking about the products that they are trading, like from crude oil for the traditional energy, both of these two parts are really important one in the world. But they are quite different. I mean,、uh, from another point of view, because we are looking at、uh, Hong Kong and also the Indonesia and the Saudi, they are the representative of the region. These re- very important regions are quite different from the Western. Areas from、uh, the, the the United Kingdom and the United States, they have very special characteristic to do with、uh, some of the potentials. If you are looking at、uh, GDP growth, you may find that the、uh, growth in these regions in the Middle East and in the Southeast Asia and South and、uh, the Eastern Asia, they are increasing very quickly and also sustainably. So I think that the connections of these、uh, regional stock market will really provide the investors for a long term. 
development for the you know the sustainable development of the economy. They are giving much more different opportunities for the potential investors who are trying to not only look at the indirect investment but also benefit from long-term real economies development. That is really special when you are compared with other stock markets in the New York and also in the London. Mm. Dr. Zhou, as shown in the growth of uh, Saudi exchange and Indonesia stock exchange, how is the rise of emerging markets influencing the global investment preferences, do you think? Yeah, I, you know, uh, when we're talking about that, I would say that in the recent years, we see a lot of fluctuations in the indirect investment for the portfolio investment. So many of the investors are trying to think about whether they can benefit from a longer term and more stable development. So invest invest in the uh, in the Western stock exchange. They are able to have a short term maybe the profits, but well at the same time they have to undertake a much higher risk. So invest in this uh, you know in the Indonesia and in Hong Kong stock market. Investors may benefit with a a little bit lower but a more uh, sustainable development of the income. So I believe that uh, many of the investors are in this stage are facing so many uncertainties from the geopolitical to uh, you know the inflation. So they may they may prefer to have a much lower but more stable investment returns. So in this regard, they believe that these areas will have a much more sustainable development rates, and they want to benefit from this. Mm. Dr. Zhou, um, some analysts argue that being listed in Hong Kong recent uh, these days has lost its charm because the place uh, went through some turmoil in the turmoil in the past few years. What is your take? I don't believe that. Uh, you know, I I would say that is uh, nothing to do with uh, the political things. Because if you want to invest in an area, you should look at the the prospect of the uh, development and the future. In this regard, I still believe that Hong Kong is the, the world's most free market. If you are looking at the systems, the laws, the regulations, there's no, almost nothing for block the inflow and outflow of the different resources. So if you want to, you know, to benefit by the better integration in the world, you you can go there. But if you still want to have more potential of growth, you can find that Hong Kong is much more connected with the mainland. I would say that in the past maybe maybe years, we see that connections are strong, strengthened, then not only in the traditional way, but many areas like the service industries and also something to do with the innovation cooperation. So if you want to, to try to look at these phenomena, we can still find that the ETF, the, you know, you mentioned about the Saudi, but they also provide many other things that has been traded, increased a lot in the in this year in Hong Kong exchange. Mm-hmm. So they are attracting, actually attracting more investors from all around the world to invest there and benefit with the better, you know, innovations and also the open market by China, I would say that is definitely the, the trend for us to cooperate, mm-hmm. for many investors to believe. Mm. Well, thank you. That was Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis has expressed annoyance after his British counterpart Rishi Sunak cancelled a scheduled meeting with him in London. Sunak's cancellation notice came only hours before the meeting was due to take place. The cancellation happened amid a diplomatic row between the two countries over the status of the Parthenon sculptures. Greece has been asking the British Museum to permanently return the 2,500-year-old sculptures removed by Lord Elgin from the Parthenon Temple in the early 19th century.
The Greek Prime Minister says he hoped to have the opportunity to discuss the issue with his British counterpart. He also said that talks over a possible return of the sculptures to Athens are not advancing quickly enough. The Greek government has been discussing a possible loan deal for the sculptures with the British Museum. The British government has always ruled out giving up ownership of the sculptures, saying they were legally acquired. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. George Zugopoulos, Director of EU-China Programs and Senior Research Fellow at European Institute of Nice. Thank you, Doctor. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Doctor, first of all, help us understand the aesthetic as well as historical value of the Panthenon sculptures. Well, these uh, artifacts belong to Greece's culture.、Uh, they belong to the Parthenon of of,、uh, of Athens, but、uh, under the dramatic circumstances of the Ottoman uh, Empire、mm. in the end of the eighteenth、uh, century, they were removed uh, from uh, Greece, and uh, then uh, they were preserved uh, in the British Museum in uh, London. And what is happening is that Greece is diachronically pushing for their return from the British Museum to Greece, and Greece is also having a new museum right now, which can offer、uh, good preservation and conservation of that、uh, marbles. And this is the basis of the current disagreement between Greece and the United Kingdom.、Mm. Well,、uh, Doctor, the twenty-five hundred-year-old sculptures,、um, as you already mentioned, were removed by British diplomat Lord Elgin, you know, from the Parthenon Temple in the early nineteenth century.、Um, the British government said that these sculptures were legally acquired, and current laws, meaning the nineteen sixty-three British Museum Act. Uh, prevent the British Museum from giving up the ownership of the treasures. What is your take on the statement of the ownership with, of these treasures by the British government? Well, there is lively debate about、uh, the marbles which are currently located in the British、uh, Museum.、Uh, even from a legal perspective,、uh, the the British argument can be challenged. But I would say that more emphasis is currently placed on the political argument. Uh, that uh, Greece uh, has, which is that、uh, these marbles need to return to the place where they were constructed、uh, for centuries. So this political argument right now、uh, has some validity, but it can also be accompanied with、uh, legal arguments. On the other hand, of course, what the British are saying is that there is no country in the world which is owning a specific artifact. Because culture belongs to everyone, and that is what is causing this lively discussion.、Mm. Well, then,、uh, Professor, we heard, we saw cases in in France in the past few years that、uh, efforts are being actively made to to actually amend some laws in the country to return some of the artifacts、uh, that France obtained from its、uh, colonies,、um, you know, in the past. So, is it time? Do you think for British lawmakers to own up to the country's colonial history and rewrite these laws? Well, perhaps uh, yes, uh, because uh, especially the case of of, of the Marthenon sculptures is uh, uh, highly symbolic. You know, the 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 value of those、uh, marbles is uh, widely uh, acknowledged. And even when President Xi Jinping, for example, came to Greece in 2019, he mentioned that these marbles need to come back to Greece. So I would say that certainly a legal discussion on the matter can evolve. But what matters more is the fact that uh, uh, that kind of marbles, along with other artifacts, need to come back to their place of to their place of origin. This is what matters, and obviously the case of Greece is largely significant in that regard because Greece, as China, as well as other countries, represent ancient civilization. So this is what makes the difference, and not necessarily the colonial past of countries like Britain.、Mm. Doctor, in 2022, Germany returned 22 artifacts looted in the 19th century back to Nigeria at a ceremony in Abuja, and Nigeria said it was the first time a European country had entered into this kind of agreement. Germany's foreign minister 
at the Annalena Baerbock uh, had said at the time that it was part of efforts to deal with a dark colonial history, and that it was an opportunity to right some of the wrongs of the past. How do you think Germany's action will influence the global museum conservation industry? Well, it is an action that、uh, is、uh, highly significant. It can be the beginning toward the return of artifacts to their place of of origin. And、uh, the reference that you just made is is highly significant. But obviously, once again, I would like to stress that the potential return of the Parthenon marbles is much more significant due to their value and due to the fact that they belong to Greece's ancient civilization. So, a debate about the importance of history, culture, and ancient civilizations, along with、uh, another discussion regarding、uh, the validity of legal arguments, is currently、uh, ongoing and developing. So,、uh, I believe that、uh, more time is required, but we have entered a period during which more hope for the return of that kind of artifacts can、uh, certainly exist.、Mm. Now, Doctor, over this summer, the British Museum was involved in a scandal of thefts taking place in the museum and artifacts missing. How do you see the museum's capability to take care of these artifacts of human civilization? Well, I'm aware of of this situa- situation, and uh, certainly uh, these uh, reports are uh, very uh, significant.、Mm. Uh, however, the British Museum has a long、uh, history. Of conserving and preserving artifacts, so I wouldn't say that it is a matter of the ability of the museum to conserve and preserve. It's mainly a matter of the political will of the United Kingdom to realize the situation. And although certainly culture belongs to everyone, at the same time, the origins of the Parthenon marbles cannot be forgotten. And this is the substance of the problem. And I strongly believe. That uh, uh, in the long term the marbles will come back to their place of origin.、Mm. Well, thank you. That was、uh, Dr. George Zugopoulos, director of EU China programs and senior research fellow at European Institute of Nice. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines: Chinese authorities review guidelines on high-quality development of the Yangtze River Economic Belt. World's first supply chain expo kicked off in Beijing. Israel and Hamas agreed to extend truce for two more days. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now. Thank、you